Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts... I'm Bean, the co-founder of Reu and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. Today we're talking to Jody and Miranda, and we're going to be talking about nonverbal communication. So Jody Summers is the founder of From Play to Words, which is a clinic in Bruce Grove that's been open for 15 years. And Miranda is one of our Ryu moms. Her son, Vincent, is one of our clients, and we feel that she has a lot to offer with her experience. And she's also the founder of Mindfully Inclusive, which she can tell us a little bit about later. Jody, do you want to just go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. My name is Jody Summer. I'm a speech-language pathologist by training, and I am the founder and director of From Play to Words in Spruce Grove. I specialize in motor speech and augmentative communication, and I am a leader of PROMPT, which is a teaching technique for speech pathologists to work on how muscles move to make sounds. I'm a mom of three boys, and I guess that's it. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. Miranda, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself as well, please? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a mom. I have two littles. Vincent is four and a half and Violet is 17 months. And yeah, I am the founder of Mindfully Inclusive that I just launched this year, which is something that was I was inspired to just do because of Vincent and his various needs and his disability. And so I promote inclusion in the community, wanting to cultivate it and promote mindful living and bring awareness to disabilities, especially those children living with disabilities. And yeah, other than that, I'm a mom, a wife, and live out in Spruce Grove as well. Awesome. Well, thank you both for being here with us today and for having this really needed conversation about nonverbal communication. So I guess just to kick it off, Jody, what does it mean to be nonverbal? I think that's a great question. We've actually received a lot of feedback from various communities, including autistic adults. And some communities actually prefer the term non-speaking to non-verbal. So I think that's interesting. Sometimes when a person is described as nonverbal, Oh, whether that child or adult has autism or another disability, it's sometimes assumed that that person doesn't have the ability to formulate sentences, responses, opinions, or thoughts. So some people who don't use mouth words, they can feel that non-speaking is a more accurate description of someone who's not communicating with oral speech, but might be communicating with signs or printed words or typing or pictures or electronic means. So sometimes those two terms can be used interchangeably. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction that we don't even think about non-speaking versus non-verbal. And like you say, sometimes they're used uh, interchangeably, but there is a definite difference between not being uh, vocal and not being able to speak. 
All right. Do you want to jump in and do you want to, Jody, talk a little bit about the difference between nonverbal or non-speaking and pre-verbal? Because I know there's some parents that get thrown around the terms pre-verbal. Um, do you want to go into what that means? For sure. I would actually say there's not a difference between those terms necessarily, uh, between speaking and non-speaking or pre-verbal or pre-speaking and non-speaking or pre-verbal and pre-speaking. I do feel like pre-verbal or pre-speaking it can be used more with younger children. It's often common to hear that kids over the age of, of eight who are not yet talking likely will rely more on non-speech means for most of their communication, but that's not always the case. So for those who don't know, what could that sound like or could that look like to be pre-speaking? Is this kind of the toddler babble that we're kind of hearing or is it something different? I'm not even sure how to answer that question <laughs> because I really, I rarely use that term. Actually, the idea of pre-speaking or, re- or pre-verbal is something we don't often use in our community because I think the reason we don't use it is, is I feel like it says that that child will absolutely talk. And I'm not sure that that is, is the right terminology to share with the family because we just don't know all the time, you know, what's going to happen with how the child's communication is going to move forward. And I think uh, what's important about that is it almost makes it sound like speaking is necessary or more important than other means of communication. And all means of communication should be considered equally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's good to know. Because I mean, these are just terms that I've heard thrown around from different parents and different interactions that I've had, and I haven't necessarily been immersed in the speech language world. So no, that's fantastic to hear your perspective. And I mean, you're right, all communication is important and should be valued and speaking is definitely not the end all be all. Yeah, I really agree with that too. And thank you for telling us about this because I didn't know about that either. Is there a term that you would use to describe that period of time? Or do you just like not use specific like terms to kind of, you know, I guess put people in boxes? Yeah, I I feel like we don't. I mean, certainly there's ages where we're uh, listing to determine the expectations for babbling, for example, and that might determine whether mouth words are going to be more likely for an individual. We're, you know, listening for first words around 12 months of age, and we have kind of numbers we look for if it looks like that child's going to use words more likely than other means of communication, but not terminology necessarily. Well, on that note, can we dive a little bit into what might lead a child to be non-speaking? For sure. So a child might be non-speaking for a variety of reasons. Challenges with oral speech are often linked to certain diagnoses or genetic conditions, things like Angelman's or Rett syndrome. In terms of diagnoses, things like cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, autism, children who have those diagnoses can have varying levels of oral speech difficulties from absolutely no challenges with oral speech to very affected oral speech. In terms of other diagnoses, dysarthria, which affects motor control for speech, meaning the, the muscle movements for speech are more challenging. That can really affect oral speech. And then uh, apraxia, of course, is a diagnosis that affects the motor programming for speech. So meaning the message that the individual wants to send is in their brain, it's clear, but there's a challenge of communicating that message to the muscles to move in the right ways for speech production. 
Cool. So it sounds like there's a whole host of reasons why somebody may be non-speaking. Does that change your approach based on the diagnosis or the known reason or unknown reason behind their lack of speech? Absolutely. The diagnosis or the reason, and sometimes we don't know, sometimes we don't know the reason, but if we do have an idea of whether it's muscle related or motor programming related, the ways that we can support that individual to develop speech will be different, but all of them lead to wanting to support that individual with augmentative means to communicate their messages and reduce their frustration. Bean, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I'm just going to jump in and say, is it okay to use the term nonverbal? Well, I think nonverbal communication can still represent all the things that we do as human beings to communicate, right? It's just that there's just some communities that feel that non-speaking or mouth words versus not using mouth words are better represent what they can and cannot do. So I don't think the idea of what is nonverbal communication, which I think was your next question, if I'm following, I don't think that's necessarily a bad question. I think we can kind of answer what it is for a human being, but I just think it is kind of important to note that there's communities out there that do find it offensive, and then there's other people who don't. It's fine. So, Yeah, I guess that's true with everything, but we don't want to keep saying something if it is offensive, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So then what is nonverbal communication? Sure. Well, when we talk about nonverbal communication for just a human being, it's really, we're talking about the gestures, the facial expressions, the body language we use to convey a message. So when they talk about nonverbal communication for people that are also speaking, they'll often say that what you're using nonverbally in your gestures, facial expression, et cetera will communicate, you know, 70% of your message, 80% of your message. And so you take a lot of meaning from that. So I think that's kind of a big piece of nonverbal communication. In the speech language community, when we talk about nonverbal communication, we're really usually talking about AAC. And AAC stands for? So AAC stands for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. So if you look at the American Speech and Hearing association, when they talk about AAC, they're talking about any form of communication that isn't speech. So it could be written, it could be pictures, it could be voice output systems, eye gaze that are used to express thoughts, needs, wants, opinions, ideas. Cool. So really, there's a lot of variety within which the AAC devices encompass just a realm and caters to the individual's strengths, I kind of would assume. Oh, very much so. There's so many opportunities for use of augmentative communication now. So, I mean, those are things where the communicator is using their own body. So that's gestures, that's eye gaze, that's facial expressions, that's sign language, that's systems that are using pictures, paper, that's systems that are using higher tech devices such as iPads or dedicated devices that have voice output, alphabet, spelling, typing. There's lots of options. Mm -hmm. On that note, so there's so many different types. So speaking to parents now, how do they find the right one for their child? Is it a lot of trial and error or how does that process work? Absolutely. So we do recommend that families work with a speech language pathologist to determine the best fit for augmentative communication. Working with a speech pathologist allows you to trial 
a bunch of different uh, methods of communicating both what we consider low-tech, which is paper-based versions, or high-tech, which are more device-based or iPad-based or voice output-based versions, and, and find what works for your family and then what allows that client to communicate not only at home, but in a variety of environments with a variety of different communication partners. Awesome. So on that note, you mentioned working with an SLP, so speech language pathologist. Can we go into a little bit about how an SLP can actually help the child? I know we talked a lot about um, speech and communication, but is there other aspects that we might be missing? For sure. Speech language pathologists have a master's degree in communication disorders. So they're trained to support families to identify their child's needs in communication. And we work obviously across a a broad range of kids who are using augmentative communication to communicate to kids who are using verbal communication, who are working on grammar, who are working on speech sounds, who are working on social skills. So speech pathologists do provide support to a, a broad range or variety of clients. When you're working with a speech pathologist on augmentative communication, one of the first things they'll do is support families to identify when their child is already sending messages because even kids who are really struggling to use their body or to you know use their mouths for speech, they are finding ways to send messages. So the speech pathologist will work with the people in the home and the family and figure out how their child is currently sending message and how can we capitalize on those opportunities? What are they excited to communicate about and how are they doing that? And then we'll teach families about different functions of communication. So not just requesting, but commenting, sharing ideas, asking questions, protesting, making choices. So we'll really talk to families about the function of communication and how to provide opportunities to do more than just ask for things and express emotions, things like that. And then we also support families to help to learn about AAC and what is the best fit for for their child. Awesome. That kind of leads us into our next kind of segue is how do I know my child can communicate? So unfortunately, still in this kind of day and age, I see parents who are told their child can't communicate or they will have limited ability to interact and communicate. So how do you guys kind of share that with the parents that they do have the ability to communicate and to pull out what that communication looks like? Absolutely. The important thing about communication is it comes in many forms. And I think, like we discussed, the idea of nonverbal versus non-speaking is that speech can be the you know highly preferred and the coveted form. But uh, there's so many ways that we communicate and that the kids we work with communicate. So I think that 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 is kind of the first, you know, piece to talk to families about is that even if your child's not speaking, they are already communicating. And we need to to talk about that. Eye gaze, body movement, even leaning away from something or leaning towards something is communication. Hand leading, leading you by the hand is a big way that kids who are struggling with mouth words will communicate. It's just important to give meaning to those actions and, and let the child know that you understand they're sending a message and, you know, layer meaning on top of those movements and activities, because that's how kids gain competence. And you just, you really have to assume that they are sending messages and, and help give them meaning. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I know with a lot of the kids I work with, they're non-speaking, but they have a lot to say, right? It's in body language. It's in how they respond to what I've been saying. And it's funny, like when I call kids out on fake crying, they'll just turn and give me that look. I get a lot of looks every use. So I definitely know there's lots of communication that happens. And it's really cool to see 
everybody kind of evolve as they grow. And I don't know, Miranda, if you want to jump in on any of that um, communication on from Vincent's side. Yeah, well, I mean, he is one of your kiddos who has a lot to say <laughs> and, you know, doesn't use words, right? He definitely uses his body language, reaching, clapping, smacking, tapping. He is often like so easily engaged by other forms of communication. And I just think my whole world has been opened up to all these different forms of communication that I had no idea about. I really, I thought there was like, language that we speak and language with our hands like ASL and that was it. <laughs> I want to just jump in and just tell us a little bit more about Vincent's communication. Does he trial any AAC devices or anything or? Yeah so he does and he has. He currently uses the pod system the low-tech version or the light version where it's on paper it's like a big three-coil bound like binder almost that stands up and has symbols on it. So there's like, I can't remember if there's like 16 symbols on one page. And I'm still learning it. It's a lot. I think we've been using it for at least six months, maybe closer to nine even. And he now is just starting to understand some of the pathways in it, specifically the one to ask for his iPad. (laughs) (laughs) which is great because it shows me that he's learning this is his way to get what he wants. And yeah, we use a little bit of hand signing too for more and all done and simple ones, but he doesn't gesture to them back. So I just find when I do it and the more expressive I am with my hands and my arms and the way I do things, the more engaged he is, the more he makes eye contact to me and pays attention to what I'm trying to tell him. And yeah, this book is just, now that I have two children and I can compare a little bit like what it's like to have one that doesn't have a disability, Violet hears me and my husband and all of us speaking and saying all these words, like thousands of words are just filling her brain all the time. And that's how she's learning to talk. And with Vincent, I've learned that that didn't work for him. So now we need to model this pod book and all these symbols to him like on a consistent basis for months and months and months, just as the same way that like Violet's learning to listen and absorb words. If I explain that okay, and if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's just a whole new language for him to learn and I have to model it. So I'm his biggest modeler. I have to model it. He then interprets it and eventually, hopefully, will continue to absorb it and model it back as time goes on. Yeah, that's cool. Neuroplasticity at its finest. Right. Yeah. And he vocalizes a lot. Like, we know when he's happy. We know when he's frustrated. Just like any young child or toddler, they have their excited squawks and then their frustrated screams or what have you. And he has started saying, uh-huh, when you ask him a question. So he he probably says, uh-huh, the most when he's at Ryu, because Nancy always asks him, are you ready for the next, you know, whatever? And he, uh-huh, like, move on, let's go. 
So that's sweet. It's nice because we're almost at the stage where we can get the yeses and the noes interpreted. And that's just huge, I've realized, for a four-year-old who's very determined and knows what he wants, but can't always get to it. So I, he's definitely an emergent communicator in that sense. That's awesome. Miranda, I want to ask you, well, this is for both you and Jody, but I often get asked, like, how do you talk to people with disabilities, right? But my question to you is, how do you talk to someone who is non-speaking? I always say, like, presume competence and just have the belief that a person has the ability to understand. And I think learning from my son and the fact that even though he can't say words back to me, I realize he has so much to say. And so just talk to them like you would anyone else and give them maybe a little bit more space and a little bit more time to respond in their own way. And yeah, just be patient and talk to them like you would anyone else. I love it. That's my response too. whenever I get the question of how do I talk to people with disabilities? But I just wanted to hear if your answer was any different. And I'm glad that it wasn't. (laughs) Jody, do you have anything to add to that? Just Uh, from a professional's point of view? Being non-speaking doesn't correspond to intelligence in any way. Non-speaking kids should be given the same opportunities, same language input as any other kids. Talk to them about the world around you. And like Miranda said, presume competence. There's... Lots of AAC learners who use pictures or typing to convey very complex messages. So being non-speaking, as I said, not related to intelligence. So Jody, are there any common strategies that one could use to engage their child in communication or language? Well, there's lots of individualized uh, strategies that a speech pathologist can teach you just in terms of day-to-day interactions. We certainly say that if you're working with a speech pathologist, whatever you're working on, you should be able to use in the next 24 hours. That's one of our clinic rules. And so speech pathologists are working on functional communication. If I had to pick a few strategies that are probably you know most beneficial generally, the first one probably would be interacting face-to-face. So whenever you're face-to-face with a child, you're going to encourage them to learn about your gestures, your facial expressions, your mouth movements. You're going to share interests. So I really encourage um, families to interact face-to-face with their child, have them on your lap, even reading. People always sit behind their child to read. But I'm like, put the book in between the two of you and let them see your facial expressions as you read and discuss the pictures. So I would say being face-to-face is... One of those strategies that we talk a lot about. Definitely, we, we talked about interpreting your child's message. So giving meaning to your to the child's body movements and actions. If they wiggle their body when you stop swinging them, you know, saying, oh, you want more and modeling those kinds of, of words. Or if they pull you towards the fridge saying, oh, you want me to open it? You want to open? Let's open it. So giving um, meaning and models, modeling language and um, highlighting those, those functional words in your daily activities. And then I think if I had to pick one more, I'd say giving choices. So Miranda talked about that idea of the power of yes, no. We really want to let children see that communication is powerful, that when you communicate, it gives you control over your environment. And, you know, as human beings, we crave control over environment and kids crave control over their environment. So being able to let them choose between highly preferred items or preferred and non-preferred items and just give them 
um, some control, whether that's through pictures, whether that's through, you know, holding up real items. I just think giving choices and showing that communication is powerful is also a great strategy. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on a little bit, since we've been in this COVID-19 pandemic, you you mentioned face-to-face. So I know a lot of the time at home, you have the luxury. Have you found that speech language has changed all, or have you been able to adapt to that face-to-face within the professional environment? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when we first had to mask up for therapy, I thought I cannot do speech pathology in a mask. <laughs> like this is insane. But actually, it's funny how much, like I said, of your communication is not just with your mouth. So although we have used clear window masks for kids that it ben- where it benefited to have those visual cues, at our clinic, we use a lot of tactile kinesthetic support for kids. So helping them move through the movements that they need to do, whether that's, you know, supporting them on AAC or whether prompting them um, to move their mouth muscles through the movements they need to do. So actually, it it turned out all right, uh, way better than I could have expected. Yeah, I suppose you're in the field of adapting and thinking on the fly with all the kids coming in with different needs. So it makes sense that you'd be able to navigate this as well. All right. Uh, Miranda, we're going to head back to you just with how has having a child who is non-speaking changed your communication strategies or has it? It definitely has. You know, we've had to think outside the box and learn various other forms of communication. I can remember Vincent, like, so Vincent was born with a rare genetic disorder known as a microdeletion of a chromosome. So I learned that when he was about eight months old. And of course, I went down a rabbit hole on Google to try and understand what that meant. (laughs) And one of the things on his like list of common symptoms of having this diagnosis is that he could potentially be nonverbal. So of course, by the time he was like, a year, I was signed up for courses to try and learn like what that meant and how he would potentially be able to communicate otherwise and started right from like that early age speaking to him in the first then language. Like first we do this and then we do that. And I don't know if that's helped at all. I feel like we still do that to this day to try and get him to understand what's coming next. You know, he's obviously understanding so much more these days. He just doesn't have a lot of patience. So sometimes I can't tell him what's next. (laughs) But yeah, anyways, we definitely have had to learn about all the different modalities and ways to communicate. And we emerged him in all things communication as soon as we could via the Glen Rose and did some toddler treatment groups there and then I've had private ongoing speech for quite some time now too. Yeah I mean that's uh, cool to see just how you shifted and adapted as parents so then how's your extended family been able to adjust and adapt to communicating with Vincent? Yeah, so I've been very fortunate in that both grandmas worked in early education and with children in our community that have disabilities. And so I think that they had the upper hand in that they knew some of these different ways to communicate 
more so than I did. And the grandmas were already pulling out these symbol pages and showing him them. And I remember thinking like, what is this? What are they doing? But Vincent has his own way of communicating with like everybody in our family. You know, I've got two younger brothers and Vincent has uncles and aunties on both sides. And he's such a social butterfly. And I think they have been so good to just love him for who he is and watch all the little cues that he has to show like what he wants and what he has to say. I've tried my best to teach them what I know. It's a lot to do this whole modeling of the pod book, but I try to bring it places with us and they see that. And, you know, sometimes it's like feels like homework in a way to always be doing (laughs) the modeling and such. So I don't put it on all the extended family, of course. But yeah, he communicates in his own way to all of them. And another thing I was going to say, too, is Vincent has CVI, the cortical vision impairment. So because of that, I find that I really recognize, like, since I, I've learned of this diagnosis, we just got it back in May, I think. And since I've learned of that, I realize that he is so in tune in other ways, like his auditory, visual, like, field, you know, he takes time to, like, observe a person, look them up and down a bit before he decides if he's going to like communicate with them in any way and I find that so interesting now that I know that about him it makes it a lot easier to understand why he's the way he is and does certain things a certain way you know he smells things and he just uses all of his senses which is so cool yeah that is really cool to like see and to hear as well. We did a podcast on CVI a few episodes ago now, and it was really interesting to learn about what it is and how it affects individuals so differently. And Miranda, you're right. You were very lucky to have both grandmas as early education teachers. Were they teachers? Like educational assistants. One grandma was a secretary in a school for years, the school he's at. And so, you know, they just definitely had their foot in the door already, I felt. And it just, it's like he was meant to be in their life, you know? It's funny how families end up having children in their life with a disability and what have you and they were just totally meant to have them as their grandson it's so obvious <laughs> that's awesome I love that you guys yeah you're definitely very lucky and you know I've met some of your family members and they all seem to be really amazing so the, having that support system I'm sure has been a really big help to you absolutely yeah it takes a village and I'm very fortunate to have have the team that we have So then I kind of want to change direction here a little bit. Are there any misconceptions about Vincent that people have? I'm not sure. I like, I think that people sometimes are afraid to say the wrong thing to me about him or so they don't say anything at all. I often find and they are learning. I think I've had a lot of friends, you know, they're learning through us and they appreciate that. So I get the observing and the sometimes friends maybe or people taking a step back and just not wanting to intervene or I don't know if I'm making sense. 
But I think people need to know that it's okay to get a little bit closer to his face and to talk to him and to just give him that quiet time to respond in his own way and not just assume because he's non-speaking that he has nothing to say, I guess. And he can make choices. I think that's another thing that people might not realize is, you know, you give him two different books to choose from and he's going to pick the one he wants and he's going to know which one he wants. So, yeah, if if people can give um, him that opportunity, it definitely proves to be worth it and it's very easy to build a connection with him for sure. Yeah, I guess that ties back into what Jody was saying earlier is just to talk to them like how you would talk to any neurotypical able-bodied person, right? I was going to say, I was just going to jump in here. Jody, do you have any advice for parents that you wish they knew about non-speaking children? So for anybody who's either looking in or raising someone who's non-speaking, do you have anything to say to them? When I think about that question, I think that sometimes I meet families who waited a really long time to consult a speech-language pathologist. Sometimes families don't get a genetic diagnosis right at birth, and they have a concern at their one-year checkup, their 18-month checkup, and are, are unsure how to pursue supports. And sometimes a pediatrician will say, oh, just wait and see. He's probably just a late talker. And so that child is maturing without access to any kind of augmentative communication that can help get their message across. And then families are finding that behavior is a challenge because the child is so frustrated. And the parent has said, well, the pediatrician said, you know, let's just wait and see. And so for families who are seeing an 18 month old kiddo who is not yet using words to communicate, get in and see a speech pathologist, even if it's just to ease your mind that things are developing typically, or just to pop in for a consult. We do 30 minute uh, free consults, pop in for a consult and just get an idea of what you should be seeing because children are going to have trouble speaking. We want to get those supports in early so that that frustration piece doesn't uh, play a part in that. So I think that's, you know, one thing that that's certainly on my mind. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Miranda, do you have any advice for any parents who are going through the same situation that you you went through? Yeah, I think I was sort of going to say the same thing in that they don't need a diagnosis. And I actually had this experience recently where someone was chatting to me about their son who's at a certain age and not you know, saying the double syllable words and putting sentences together. And when I sort of let them know they don't need a diagnosis to get support, it's just speech therapy. And it can be so beneficial to set them up for like kindergarten and all the future years. It was sort of like, oh, I think a lot of people, they're afraid their child's just going to be put on a box where they're like delayed and they're afraid of that and ignore it a little bit. And then, like you said, Jody, they get to that point where the child's frustrated and now it's even that much harder. 
on everybody. So I don't think we should be afraid of the support. Just, yeah, take it. It's there for that many employees offer coverage through benefits for speech language pathology as well. And take advantage of it, you know, if the funding isn't elsewhere or what have you. I think that it's so important. And as much as like we focus on gross motor skills for Vincent, I think communication really is one of the most important things that we're working on too, because he gets frustrated (laughs) and we need all the support we can get. I know. So it's definitely makes him a happier boy when he has the tools and there's tools out there, no matter what level your child is on. So yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you. That's really good advice as well. Jody, do you have anything you'd like to add? Anything we didn't get a chance to talk about? I don't think so, ladies. (laughs) Okay. And Miranda, do you want to add anything else? I think we covered a good chunk. Yeah, I'm good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this was a great conversation. I know I learned a lot and I love that we have the platform in order to share this kind of really valuable information uh, with a lot of people who need it and for other professionals too, who might be going into SLP or maybe there's some SLPs out there listening to this. I think you guys both gave us all really good advice and some really good information about non-speaking communication. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Miranda, for joining us. Jody, where can people get a hold of you if they want to look into your business? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, our website is probably the best from play to words.com. And uh, we have information on there, intake form, and we'd be happy to chat with families who have questions about their children's development. We'll just have a quick phone conversation with people. And sometimes it's like, you know what, things are good where you are right now. You don't need to come in or come on in and meet us and maybe we can send you in the right direction. So we do a lot of cross referrals and helping families find assessments or things they need. So yeah, and that's through speech, through occupational therapy, behavior support, all of those pieces. So we're happy to answer any family questions. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing the amazing work you're doing at From Play to Words. We hear nothing but amazing things about you guys. And we have so much respect for you and your organization. So keep it up. Uh, I feel the same way about you guys. (laughs) Thanks. And Miranda, if people wanted to reach out to you, how can they do so? Probably through my website, mindfullyinclusive.ca or through any social media platform like Facebook or Instagram. Thank you. And their contact information will be linked in this episode description and on our social media as well. Again, ladies, thank you so much for joining us today and for having this conversation with us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.